and welcome to All By Our Shelves, a library podcast. My name is Mary Bear Shannon. I work in the reference department and I am joined by my reference colleagues, Mandy Falwell. Hi. Kim Christopher. Hello. And Amy Moskowitz. Hi. And we are here to tell you about what we've been reading this month. Um, and what we what we like and dislike about the the books that we have been reading. Um, so, Mandy, tell us a little bit about what you've been reading. Uh, hi, this is Mandy, and my novel that I reviewed for this month is called How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nemagatsu. It was printed in January 2022, so it's a relatively new book. It is available in the Kindle Teal Group and the Nook Purple Group, as well as in Overdrive and Libby. This book was so interesting to read that I really wanted to present it for the podcast, despite the subject matter that it's a plague. Uh, I read other books, but this one really touched me, and I hope that after I explain, you will understand why, and why I'm choosing to review it, even as we are still in the middle of a pandemic. See, the thing is that on the surface, this book is about a pandemic, but it's a far worse one than the one we have lived with over the last couple of years. This plague was discovered in the story in a body of a young girl that had been uncovered as climate change warmed the polar regions, causing the ice that had previously encased her body to melt. She was found by a group of scientists who were studying the effects of climate change on ancient ice flows. They reanimated the virus, inadvertently setting it loose in the world. First preying only on children, this illness causes the cells of the body to change and mutate, to recreate themselves as cells from the different part of the body. For example, the cells that form the lungs would start producing a heart and change into the cells that make the heart, causing the death of the person who suffers the changes and mutations. After a number of years, the virus itself then mutates to eventually rob nearly 50 million people of their lives over the course of the what they call the Arctic Plague, before a package was found outside of one of the labs that was struggling to develop a vaccine. It's a glowing vial with a note reading, a little help. What makes this interesting is the way that the book was written and the way that it is all tied together. It is essentially a history of the plague as told in chronological order, but through individual stories and experiences of those who lived through it, or even through interactions with those who were lost to it, children and later adults. Beginning in the laboratory in Siberia with a man who went to the scientific outpost to continue his adopted daughter's research after she was killed in an accident, and his experiences at the origin point of the illness that take place at approximately present day. Each chapter follows the story of the plague as it evolves and impacts different people and society in a more general sense, until humanity sends a ship, which is filled by public lottery, into space with the hopes of colonizing another world and escaping the fate of this one, just as a vaccine is developed. For most of the book, each chapter is told by a different person in what is to them, present-day chronological order. And while these characters are sometimes interacted with or occasionally acknowledged or discussed by the speaker in other chapters, the reader really only gets the one chapter per person to step into their reality and live their life and experiences. This isn't a lot of time, but I think in the greater context of the story, it is enough. 
The experiences as told by the characters are incredibly well-written and deeply poignant. In them, we see people respond to a universal horror in very human ways, from the man who ends up working at an amusement park for children who will not be able to grow up, where he falls in love with a woman whose child has the virus, to the story of a boy who seeks love in an internet cafe, to a man named Dennis who works at a funerary hotel where people can spend time with their loved ones who are lost too abruptly, saying goodbye for the last time. Dennis's brother Brian actually ends up building the ship that will take humanity to other worlds. I suppose that is really what reached me, what really made me think. Just the detail of the writing, the depth of the sorrow and the loss in the story, and the very relatable way that people deal with it and react to it. Even towards the end of this portion of the book, when it is decades after the virus has been eradicated and a teenager has a difficult time relating to her elders who believe in family above all else and who have a community urn that they are all added to in death so that they take up less space. This doesn't matter so much in the present that she lives in, but during the plague, saving space was really important. It's an issue, though, now that the character doesn't see as important. Just as she doesn't see that staying near family is anything other than suffocating, when during the height of the pandemic, it is all people wanted, yet more than they dared to hope for or even expect. The details are rich and descriptive, the interactions between the characters heartbreakingly real and surprisingly relatable. By separating the characters into chapters and not overtly revisiting their experiences elsewhere in the novel, Sokoya Namagatsu might easily have created a disjointed work that felt more like a collection of short stories or vignettes. However, he unites what otherwise might seem a number of individual disconnected experiences with a few threads that run throughout, making everything seem like smaller pieces of a whole. First, and most obviously, there's of course the timeline of the quote, Arctic plague itself that drives the novel. Then there's the fact that sometimes characters do show up in the chapters of other characters, uh, such as interactions between the brothers Brian and Dennis Yamato, or interactions where uh, one character will see another character and you'll just recognize the name from a previous chapter. Lastly, the other overarching plot device that joins the novels together really expresses itself at the end of the book, in the presence of a purple crystal necklace that shines like a galaxy of stars that appears periodically in a number of places in the story, and it ends in a story of the creation of Earth. So I hope that you can see why I found this book so interesting and why it really captured my mind when I was reading it. It would be a good book for anyone who likes dystopian fiction or science fiction and is really a worthwhile and absorbing read. Hi, Mandy. This is Amy. I'm curious what it was like for you to read a book like this during a pandemic and what parallels, if any, you found. The life lost in this book was far greater than the life lost in the COVID-19 pandemic. I read it not so much as a parallel between the COVID-19 plague and the plague in the book, because the plague in the book was so much more severe. To me, it almost seemed like an indictment of global warming and a harbinger of climate change. So it was more like a warning of that. But I think that what remains the same in both the book and uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is just 
the universal experience. You know, we're not just people in the United States experiencing in our little part of the world. And you know, it's not just people in Japan experiencing their part of the world. And everybody, as their individual countries, experiencing their version of reality. But this is actually the plane of reality that we all share together. Whether it's the plague of the novel where they shared like 20 years of terrible fear and death, or the two to three or however many years we've existed during the COVID-19 pandemic, it's still a universal understanding of, of loss, even though it's not as severe a loss, I think. Uh, loss of liberty is not the same as loss of life for most people. Um, and there was a much greater loss of life, not to say that it didn't happen, of course, because it did, uh, but there was a much greater loss of life in the book and a much more universal loss of liberty in reality. Uh, Mandy, this is Mary. So would you say there was kind of an overarching message that this author wanted to deliver about pandemics in general or just this particular pandemic? I mean, you're talking about maybe an indictment of global warming and its after effects, but would you say that was the overarching moral of the story or was there something larger than that? Well, I think if you take the whole book into account, not just the first four-fifths that had to do with the pandemic, but the last fifth that had to do with the ultimate origins of the virus in the book, I think that it just has to do with more the perseverance of humanity. It's a warning against climate change, but it is a bit of hope as well, because in the book they do discover a vaccine. And they also, as a second branch, send people to other worlds in like hibernation chambers. So it's kind of the tenacity of the human spirit that when the chips are down and when push comes to shove, not only are we going to try and fix what's going on here, even if it's the last possible minute, but we're always going to have our eyes focusing to the next step. And I just think that's something, again, that we all universally share as a human race. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Mandy. And Kim Christopher, tell us what you have been reading. Hi, uh, Kim here. So for this month, what I read was the book Kaiju Preservation Society by John Scalzi. It's a sci-fi novel and takes place in our world, actually, where it's just at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this one individual by the name of Jamie Gray He's just been sacked. He's been fired, and he doesn't know what to do with his life, and so he just takes whatever job he can to make a living, and in this case, he becomes a food delivery person, which was <laughs> still a very popular theme right now, and, well, on one delivery, he meets a former colleague of his, just, you know, at first they don't recognize each other, but then all of a sudden his former colleague, Tom, remembers who he is just from something he said, and seeing the circumstances of what he's going through, especially since he's about to get fired again because the company is merging with another, and yeah, he's going to get fired. He knows that. So Tom offers him a job with the KPS, which is the Kaiju Preservation Society, but he's very cryptic about it, doesn't tell him what it is, and Jamie, he's like, are you guys like some paramilitary group or something? Because you're not being very clear about what you do, and even though he's very sort of suspicious of it all because, yeah, just somebody, even just a former colleague, offering him a job out of the blue just like that. He takes it because he's desperate for money. He knows he's, again, going to be sacked at this other job he's doing. So he takes the job, 
And then after a very lengthy process of, you know, signing all those papers and going through a medical examination and many shots, at least 10 on each arm, he then gets to Greenland where it's revealed to him and others what the Kaiju Preservation Society does. And basically what they do is they protect giant monsters. And kaiju is a Japanese word that basically means giant monster. So their job is to protect the giant monsters because in the 1950s, during the height of America doing all their nuclear tests as well as other countries, they accidentally breached into another dimension, that idea of alternate realities, and they just coincidentally hit one of those points where they opened up the door to this world where giant monsters exist. And so the KPS... Their job is to monitor these monsters as well as protect them, which seem, doesn't seem like something you would do for a giant monster of all things, but the reason they have to is because these monsters are essentially walking nuclear reactors and they can come and go into our world and actually that's the inspiration for Godzilla in this novel at least, that a kaiju crossover to our world the creators of Godzilla saw it and were inspired to create the movie and, well... Long story short, just that that monster did have a nuclear meltdown, to say the least, because it's removed from its natural habitat into ours and died. And so, yeah, disasters abound. And also, the problem is that, sadly, they do have to deal with human poachers, people who just come across them and decide to harvest them because they're, again, nuclear reactors. So, but yeah, it's a... It's a really great novel. It's amazing that in less than 260 pages, John Scalzi just went into depth over the whole idea of giant monsters scientifically because it would be great to, you know, have a giant monster exist, even if it's probably going to destroy your own, maybe kill you even. But he just goes over the realistic statistics of things just that giant monsters can't actually exist because the bigger something is, it needs to have big organs and all sorts of other things to support that size. And they would die if they had like a big brain, big heart, lungs and everything. But at the same time, he explained it as since they're walking nuclear reactors, that's the energy they get to support their body. But at the same time, he also explains it scientifically that in order to keep that nuclear reactor running, they also are an ecosystem where, just like the animals in our world, they have like these parasites that create a symbiotic relationship with them to clean their nuclear reactor while also feeding them and so on. And yeah, it's just all the scientific detail it puts into that short 200-some pages, and he thinks everything through, because most stories about giant monsters are just, you know, giant monster, and they briefly touch on all these scientific concepts, but... He just dives into it, and he does it with such humor at times that, again, the idea of, you know, crossing to another world, we might like that, but he, Scalzi says that, no, you can't just cross over into another world. You have to go through a medical examination. You have to get all those shots, you know, protect yourself against the diseases and protect the animals against your diseases. And humorously, he had this one scene where, Jamie's getting the medical examination and the doctor's telling him, I can't tell you what this one shot is for other than that you may get some homicidal urges, so eat something very fatty like bacon. And Jamie's like, okay, I don't want to be homicidal, so I'll do that. But then, wait, you just told me not to eat anything fatty because of the other shot you just gave me. And the doctor sort of just dryly says, yeah, so eat the bacon while you're in the bathroom, to say the least. Oh. <laughs> 
But yeah, he just goes really scientific, all the details, but at the same fills it with all this humor. So I just had a real blast reading it. I just sat down, read it in one sitting, and finished it. And maybe he might create a sequel. I'll read it if he does. But it feels like this is just a standalone novel, and that's great the way it is. Just giant monsters, all the scientific detail, the humor. It was just a really fun read. Hey, Kim. So what impact does COVID-19 really have on this story? Does it even have much of one, or is it just basically to set up Jamie's loss of a job situation? More of a setup for the story itself, because it's set in our world, and it's at the height of COVID, so he loses his job as a result of COVID and everything, because he was working in a company where, ironically, he was creating the food delivery service and app and everything, and... He ended up working for that delivery service after he lost his job at the company. And it also sets it up later on just as a plot line where he meets the person who actually fired him from the job. So set up rather than just using it seriously in that regard. Hey, Kim. Amy here. I was wondering, um, I know you said that this book can stand alone on its own merit. I was wondering if you could appreciate it if you have not read any other of Scalzi's books or if you need to really have read any other of his books to better understand it or better appreciate it. I would say no in regards to that it's just filled with his usual writing style, but at the same time, if you're not really familiar with like giant monsters, in this case kaiju maybe would have helped to have watched Godzilla just to get a feel for it because he he does reference a lot of things in it in terms of pop culture because Godzilla and all that and they have bases that are named after characters from Japanese pop culture creators of Godzilla as well as creatures from all those giant monster movies so in that regard no but in terms of just getting familiar with his writing style you wouldn't need to read any of his other stuff because yeah, standalone novel just full of all his writing so that you might may or may not be familiar with. Okay, so Amy, what have you been reading? So for the past few months, I've been reading really well-written, amazing books on the topic of grief. I've read Bewilderment by Richard Powers, which I spoke about in last month's podcast, and Lost and Found, a memoir by Katherine Schultz. But I felt that it was time for a change. I needed to be, let's say, liberated from reading about that topic. So I switched to a book about liberation. I just finished reading the novel Olga Dies Dreaming by Sochil Gonzalez. Overall, this book is a character study of Olga and her family, their loves and losses over a brief period of time in 2017 during Hurricane Maria. While some critics have called it a romantic comedy, and it does follow Olga's love life, I'd argue that it's deeper and more layered than just that. It was hailed as the most anticipated book of 2022 by Time Magazine, and the Washington Post said, quote, don't underestimate this new novelist. She's jump-starting the year with a smart romantic comedy that lures us in with laughter and keeps us hooked with a fantastically engaging story, unquote. Kirkus, in a starred review, called it, quote, atmospheric, intelligent, and well-informed, unquote. And the LA Times called it, quote, the sharpest and best-written social comedy in a while, unquote. It was clever, and I enjoyed it from the start. 
The main character, Olga, is a wealthy, prominent wedding planner in New York who makes a living throwing lavish weddings for rich and picky upper class, mainly white elite, while she herself is of Puerto Rican descent and comes from more humble upbringing. Her mother ran off to join an underground Puerto Rican rebellion cult-like group when Olga and her brother Pedro, or Prieto, Acevedo were young, and their father died of drug-related HIV a few years back. Olga's mother keeps in touch, however, with her and Prieto through a series of letters, which we as the reader are privy to throughout the book. This helps us understand their relationship better and how it changed through time. I found Olga to be an interesting and relatable protagonist. In fact, I'm around the age Olga is in the novel. Throughout the book, she deals with a lot of self-doubt, depression, finding love, abandonment, and ultimately finding herself. This character is flawed, but rich and well-developed, as is the character of her brother Prieto. I was moved by Olga's inner turmoil as she dealt with a distant and rebellious mother, a crisis in her homeland, and the changes that one often goes through personally and professionally in their late 30s. To find out why Olga dies dreaming, read this book. The book is available now at the library in print and audiobook and on our Navy Nook e-readers. It is also available as an e-book or audiobook on Libby. So, Amy, did you have any connection with Olga's profession being a wedding planner, given that you're going to be getting married this year? And I guess my that and also, did she evolve or change based on what happened, being that she's really serving rich white people in New York City? Did that change over time? So, I was actually really interested in this book because of the main character's profession. (laughs) I have to admit, that was one of the reasons that I picked it up. But it doesn't really go into too much detail about her profession. It starts out talking about one of these upper-class weddings that she's planning, but then it really switches gears pretty quickly to her personal life and what she's going through there. It also talks a lot about her relationship with her mother and what's happening with that. So although it started off as a story about, you know, a wedding planner in New York City and all of that glitz and glam, it really quickly changes gears. So although I, part of me wanted to read a book about a wedding planner, because yes, I am getting married in the fall, Like I said, it's so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that. Part of me actually wanted to be a wedding planner at one point in my early 20s before I became a professional librarian. And now instead of planning weddings, I'm planning events for the library. Hey, Amy. uh, So based on what you said about the book, it doesn't like very dramatic character study, but what makes you think that critics would characterize it as a romance comedy? (laughs) Good question. I was asking myself that as well. There's definitely a lot of humor in it, which breaks up a lot of the deeper moments. I did find myself laughing at a lot of the humorous parts. It does follow through Olga's ups and downs in her love life, as she has a lot of different male suitors come in and out of the picture. So I could see why A lot of the critics might say that on the surface it appears like it's a love story and a romantic comedy. You know, to one, it might just seem like, oh, here's a woman who goes through men really quickly and really comedically. 
But ultimately, it's a story about a woman's liberation from a tortured family life, from a job, from a lot of different aspects of her early 30s as she's growing up and getting to know herself better. So, as I said before, it's so much deeper than simply a romantic comedy. If you're looking for a a romantic comedy, it has those aspects, certainly, but there's also a lot of other parts of Olga and other parts of the characters, which I think will really charm and engage the reader as well. Okay, so again, this is Mary, and I'm just going to talk a little bit about what I have been reading. It's a nonfiction book called Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life by Arthur Brooks. And you may have guessed, I was interested in this because I am also in the second half of my life and thinking about this topic a lot. Arthur Brooks is a really interesting author. He's a former CEO of a big-time think tank, and he's now a professor at Harvard. He's a social scientist who studies human happiness, and he left his job at the think tank at 50, which was about five to seven years ago, and embarked on this journey to just kind of discover how to transform his future from one of disappointment over waning abilities into an opportunity for progress. This book, Strength to Strength, is a result of that uh, that journey, and he writes it as a practical roadmap for the rest of your life. Um, It's interesting because, you know, many of us assume that the more successful we are, the less susceptible we become to the sense of professional and social irrelevance that often accompanies aging. But the truth is, the greater our achievements and our attachments to them, the more we notice our decline and the more painful when it occurs. And Brooks goes on to talk about just the general decline in peak performance. And he contends that it begins earlier than we'd like to admit. And it's not just athletes who reach their peak when they're 20. He talks about various careers, the financial professionals peak in their um, in their 30s to their 40s. Others decline even earlier in their 20s and 30s. And that was a little depressing, but he's really trying to make a deeper point. And the point is, addiction to relentless achievement is ultimately bound to yield disappointment, no matter how many successes that you chalk up. And And he calls it the striver's curse. People who strive to be excellent at what they do and wind up finding their inevitable decline terrifying, their successes increasingly unsatisfying, and as a result, their relationships are lacking. What he argues is that there's a lot we could be doing starting now to make our older years a time of happiness, purpose, and yes, success. He talks about two intelligences. He talks about fluid intelligence, which is raw smarts. This is kind of your early intelligence. It's when he uses examples of musicians and scientists who have really their early achievements are ones that they're mostly known for. They're usually just amazing successes, new material and new insights in whatever field you're working on. And that usually declines as early as your 30s. The second intelligence he talks about is your 
crystallized intelligence. And that's, I would just say this is wisdom. It's the ability to use a stock of knowledge learned from the past, which tends to grow even into your 60s. And he advises that the best advice is to actively jump from one curve to the other. So the fluid intelligence curves and then peaks into your 30s. And then your crystallized intelligence really kind of starts in your 30s and 40s and that he's urging you to jump to the crystallized intelligence and really focus on the things that that second intelligence can do for the world and for yourself. I mean, he's a professor himself. He left a big-time think tank because he felt like his strengths were better focused on teaching, which really is one of the fields that you do better as you age because you have wisdom. And so that's actually what he is doing at the moment. He also talks about some predictors about staying happy as you age. And he's got seven things. Some of them are are pretty obvious. Don't smoke, avoid alcohol, have a healthy body weight, stay physically active. He suggests that you walk every day, develop an adaptive coping style, and practice continuing education, really embrace lifelong learning, and to seek stable long-term relationships. And he really argues that that last one is the most important, is to have those long-term relationships that are going to feed you. And unfortunately, when we focus on fluid intelligence, those are the ones that really tend to be the the things that are sacrificed because we're trying to chase that next big success in work, and often our relationships really suffer. So he draws from social science, philosophy, biography, theology, and Eastern wisdom, as well as dozens of interviews with everyday men and women. Brooks shows us that true life success is well within our reach by refocusing on certain priorities and habits that anyone can learn, such as deep wisdom, detachment from empty rewards, connection and service to others, and spiritual progress. We can set ourselves up for increased happiness. And I guess I would make a comment about the spiritual progress. So kind of his last ideas at the end of the book really are in seven words, and that is to use things to love people, and to worship the divine. And I guess my caveat is I think he really urges that that divine is whatever form that takes. He is a Catholic himself, but he draws from lots of different religious traditions as well as kind of not anything formalized. I think what he's encouraging us all is to have a spiritual life whatever form that takes. And that could be meditation, that could be yoga, just times where you're looking beyond the things in our lives. I think that's where he says, use things, but don't love things. Uh, I think the idea is that that's what catches us up into this chasing the next big thing and really focusing on our relationships. It is interesting on his website, he has a quote from the Dalai Lama about his book. The Dalai Lama says, in this book, Arthur C. Brooks helps people find greater happiness as they age and change. I thought that was interesting. I'm not sure I've ever seen a quote from the Dalai Lama. I like this book. It left me a lot to chew on, especially for me, as as I said, I am in the second half of my life. I don't think I personally am a workaholic, as he described, but I also know that there are times where I have to really separate out my identity and not just that I'm, you know, this library person, but I'm also, uh, you know, I have all these other important relationships in my life. And I think the challenge when we retire is that you're no longer that job. And I think sometimes that can be really hard for folks that retire and 
they're like, well, who am I? And what is important to me? Because what I've done all this time, I no longer do. And I think that can be a real challenge for folks. And and I think he really encourages us not to deify our work, to make it the end all. And so my dad's been gone almost 30 years, and at his funeral, I think the thing that really hit home for me is the whole aspect of what do you want to be remembered for? I mean, he was 56, and I think he did have a lot to be remembered for, but you know, I remember somebody saying, you know, nobody gets to the end of your life and say, gee, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. They want to know, you know, what kind of person you were and what kind of volunteer work did you do and what were your relationships like? I think this is what Arthur Brooks is really saying is helping us to think about in the grand scheme of things, what are we going to be remembered for and and really prioritize those things? So the good news is that Strength to Strength is available as a book in our library and throughout the system. It's also available as an e-book and an audio book from Libby. And we here at Haverford are exploring, acquiring this as a book club in a bag. Okay, Mary. So it sounds like it's a very enlightening book, but it also sounds... uh, extremely technical. How is it writing style? Is it like a textbook almost or just... I didn't find it to be technical. He had a lot of different things that he... uh... He talked about it in terms of the seven things or the final three things that he thought were important. I found it very readable. He used a lot of different examples of people in their lives when he was illustrating fluid and crystallized intelligence. He was also talking a lot about, you know, how the really hard things in our lives often are the things that teach us the most. And he had some really interesting examples. And I I found it very readable because he was using a lot of real-time examples over really the course of history and he really did he drew on a bunch of different music and philosophy and theology sociology and social science it kept me very engaged so as a lot of people nowadays are moving away from the concept of an organized religion you mentioned spirituality you mentioned worshiping the divine I know that you pointed out that there are a number of ways that he views the spiritual concept uh, as being whatever you want, but do you really feel that this is a worthwhile book for, say, like an agnostic person or somebody who doesn't believe in an organized religion? I do. Again, he comes from his own experience as a Catholic, but I do think that he really keeps that idea of spirituality really open in terms of what's going to feed you. And clearly, organized religion really only speaks to a certain group of people. But I guess, I think the argument he was making is that we're all spiritual beings, whether we accept an organized religion or not. And I, I would say he made the point, and I think this is true, that as part of well-being and happiness, there is a spiritual element to happiness and to mental health. And I, I think about, you know, the 12-step program. I mean, they talk about a higher power as you know it. And I think that that makes something like the 12-step program that helps people become better people, it makes it accessible. And I, I got the sense that he was really billing this as you find your own spiritual way, however that is. 
You mentioned that we're looking into the possibility of this for our Book Club in a Bag program. And for listeners who aren't familiar with this, Book Club in a Bag is a free program that we offer. It is a kit of 8 to 10 copies of the same book for folks who want to form book clubs with their neighbors, family, and friends. The bag contains typically eight new releases of print books, an audiobook, and a large print book, as well as discussion questions. I'm curious, Mary, what you see as the discussion benefits for our readers in book clubs. I think the benefit is that we're all headed in this direction. I think we might be in denial if we're younger, but the reality is is that we're all headed to a second half of our life. And I did read in Goodreads, somebody said, you know, I think I read this 10 years too early, but he says, but I still saw a lot of benefit to this book. And I think that's probably why, is that I think that unless we're in our young 20s, I think we're all thinking about, you know, what does my future hold? We're establishing relationships like our families and having children, and also thinking about our work lives. And I I would say what I think has been really clear to me over the last 10 years is that there's been this sense about, okay, work is not everything. It's not the same work world that my dad grew up in where, you know, it was like you were married to the company and, you know, you did everything that you could for the company and for your job. And I sense that there's a kind of a stepping away from that in terms of this is my identity and this is my only identity. So the link for book clubs in a bag will be in the podcast notes. Okay. Well, that was what we've been reading here in All By Our Shelves. Thank you for joining us today for this podcast and thanks for joining